Hello, my name is Andy. And hello, my name is Richard. And this is Strange Stuff Murdery Bits. How is it me calling you a surprise? <laughs> well, you're early for a start. Well, yeah. I, usually, I usually do this 15 minutes before we start. I, but, almost, uh, I almost expected I was going to have to phone someone else to go and knock on the door. Nah, nah, you know. I'm, uh, I'm a little more used to getting up these days. Three days a week, I'm up at half seven to get my daughter to school. But Only three days? Yes. That, that's torture enough. I mean, school only a three-day week now. Nah, wife works at home Mondays and Fridays, so she does it. Oh, work from All home. Days. So I only have to do it the days she is uh, away. But it's uncivilised. Oh, I've already been outside wiping about, I don't know, a metre of snow off my car, getting ready for this afternoon shenanigans. Why are you ice skating on your on your front lawn? No, but I need to use my car. Ah, right, yes. And it's been sitting in the parking place for three days now. Right. <clears throat> so it was well buried, and it's like an ice block, so I've plugged it in so it can warm up a bit. Is it you or me, but you seem quite faint? Um. Yes, I could be faint. Is that any better? That is better, yeah. I'm trying to keep the mic out of my face. I mean, it's just aesthetics. Yes, well, it's all right. It's only me. I, I, I'm the only one who can see you. I have got a cup of tits in my face at the same you, time. <laughs> you have. And uh, let's face it, after all the years you hung around with Scouse Mink, it's not like you're not used to having a mic in your face. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so yeah. Mark, Mark is in merry old England. Is he now? What's he doing over here then? Um, I'm not entirely sure. He's over there for a couple of weeks. He's probably visiting family and that sort of shenanigans. Well, I don't mind being his stunt double, even if it is an unearthly hour of the morning. Yeah, well, uh, it's good that you could fill in because uh, otherwise I'll be sitting here talking to myself, which I have done before. Um, it's just not very interesting for me or indeed anyone who has to listen to me. Right <laughs> for an hour. It definitely works better with two. Talking of ranting on, I only just this morning finished editing our last recording. Oh, right. Okay. I had to edit the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. Why? Well, it was on, it was an hour and a half and it's too much. Right. So I got it down to 110, I think. Okay. I mean, luckily, when we were talking about the ACDC thing, you did repeat a lot of what we already covered. So I managed to yeah. chop a lot of that out. Because I'd, I'd read through both pieces, read them aloud, and timed myself, and 20 minutes. But oh, whatever we go, 20 minutes of that, 40 minutes of talking nonsense. So how it became an hour and a half, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you kept interrupting, that'd probably be it. That's basically my job. 
as Mark <coughs> says all the time. Uh, so what's it like over there now then? Oh, it's quite toasty now. We've warmed up to a nice minus 10. Oh, God, and T-shirt weather. Yeah, exactly. Out at a beach tomorrow. It will be nice We're going ice skating this afternoon with some work colleagues. You go into an actual ice rink. Well, I, it's not an actual ice rink because you understand our whole country is an ice rink. Yeah, indeed. So we're going to one of our local schools. They've got a hockey pitch at the back, ice hockey pitch. Okay, well, outdoors? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no indoors. Well, they, they just throw water on the rugby pitch and let it freeze. They wouldn't even know what word that meant. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, technically, <clears throat> most schools where we had football fields or pitches, they have ice hockey pitches. Yeah. Ice hockey. Yeah, that makes sense. Arenas, um, there's no getting away from it, is there? Not really. How much daylight are you getting at this time of year? Then? Oh, it's getting really light now. <laughs> 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 I mean, the shortest day of the year, December 21st, I think it got light around 10 in the morning and dark by one thirty. Bloody hell. So maybe three, four hours of daylight. Yeah. Just mental. At the moment though, we I mean it's still light, maybe two, three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. So we're doing okay. Shot moan that it'd been dark at half four again then. I mean, it's cause it's usually dark when I go to work and dark when I come home regardless. Well, yeah, I mean, that used to happen to me in the winter when I worked nights. It matters not to me. I mean, a lot of people have real problems oh. adjusting to the climate and the uh, darkness here, but you know, I, I just take it in my straw. Yeah, see, the, the dark light thing, that it doesn't particularly bother me. It's just 7.30 in the morning that bothers me because that's bedtime. <laughs> well, that is, well, it used to be bedtime. Yeah, but it is, I mean, I, you know, 40 years I worked nights. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I am a night person. Um, I've never been a morning person, even as a child. My problem <laughs> is I used to work nights and I'm a morning person. So there was no time for sleep. <laughs> yeah, no. And, it, it, you know, it's weird. Even if I you know, got up at the crack of dawn, nine o'clock at night, you'd think I'd be tired. No, bing. I am bloody wide awake at nine o'clock at night. And I am in the truth of you know, four in the morning. Anyway, you're Mark today. Yes, I am Mark. So I need to ask you, what the fuck is going on with the Americans and the UK once again bombing places they've got no business being? Oh, God, every one of them wants a war, don't they? What is wrong with the fucking world that you cannot keep your hands off other people's fucking countries? Uh, well, <laughs> well, we're colonial. Our entire history is colonial. We learned it off the Romans. So uh, we've been, um, you know, busy taking over other people's country by right of the fact that we're English for a very long time, or the fact that they're English. Let's get that right. I'm not. But why and, is um, it? and of course, the Americans inherited the colonial attitude, didn't they? Because essentially they are English. They've also got this weird attitude, the Americans, haven't they? It's colonialism, but stay, but stay at home colonialism. You know, I mean, they, when we took over a country, you know, when we took over India, loads of British people went to India. Oh, yeah, it, they actually it, moved in. Yes. Yes, when we, you know, when, Eng when England takes over your country, they arrive. Yes, you will be Englishified. But the Americans like to do it for, from long distance and then rely on people like a bar, um, 
Bin Laden and people like that to do their work for them and then wonder why they get bitten. Yeah, they train they train basic terrorists to run the country and then get surprised when the terrorists don't want to deal with America anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's oh, it's remarkable. Again, I mean Sunak, you know, it, it, it as if he hasn't got enough on his plate. What is but he no, doing? He's all up for it, isn't he? Oh no, what let's is... let's go and bomb the whoever they are that's Does... getting bombed now. Does he imagine that that's going to make him and the Conservative Party really popular by once again following America into a fucking war that we've got no business in? Well, they, they, they do seem to get this idea, don't they, that it makes them popular. Yeah, I mean, it all goes back, I suppose, to Winston Churchill, although the lesson there was win a war, lose an election. So it didn't work for him. It worked for Maggie with the Falklands, but... Yeah, and I, I think she'd have won the next election regardless. But they do seem to think that somehow giving the British people a bit of war makes them popular with the voters, yeah. Now, unfortunately, today's episode reflects this. <laughs> and it didn't occur to me until just now. Right, OK. <laughs> I don't want to glorify war. I, I will never glorify war. I think it's just a rich man's way of staying rich at the expense of the poor. Yeah, of course it is. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it has to be said, there's there's an element of nature to it. I remember my grandfather always said that, you know, you needed a bloody good war every once in a while to get rid of the cannon fodder. See, I, I don't know how I feel about that because I was that cannon fodder when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, me too. Absolutely. Uh, I've got to control Satan here because she... she does... Oh, is it... Is it, is it um... Cat bomb time. Yeah, and she did something really horrible a couple of weeks ago. She pressed some buttons and I got awful background buzzing uh, on my last two recordings. And I've cleaned it up, so this one should be clear, but she's got a knack of pressing exactly the right buttons, haven't you? <laughs> you naughty little kitty. But she is my favourite, don't tell Yeah, no, I, I, I used to have a couple of cats years ago, and one of them had, no matter where I put the remote control for the TV, when she jumped off the sofa, she always landed one paw on the remote control. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, sod's law or, you know, cat's been helpful. I've got Ronnie, who's, who's learned. <laughs> oh, I was sitting on the bog a few weeks ago doing an Instagram post for one of my episodes. And all of a sudden, this jet of water shot up my ass. <laughs> I'm not joking. It scared the shit out of me, literally. Yeah. And it turns out Ronnie has learned how to flush the bog. Okay. <laughs> and he'd snuck up behind me on the cistern and he flushed the toilet while I was sitting there concentrating on me Instagramming. Have you got one of those buttons now? Yes. Rather yes. than the handle. Yes. Yeah. There's no handles in Sweden. I've never seen one. I don't get them over here so much anymore. No, we don't have oh, the up, upstairs one because it's old. That's a handle. But the one downstairs, new button. But he's becoming quite adept with the buttons. Sometimes he turns the radio on in the kitchen. I can hear voices just in the back of my head. <laughs> and I think, oh, God, man, I'm being haunted the fuck out of here. <laughs> we had a cat when I was uh, a kid who used to take a dump on the toilet. Yeah, my my mother was always yelling at my old man and my brother and I for not flushing the loo. Yeah. I used to point out to her, well, you know, there's no toilet paper. 
So generally, we're, so, we're, we're you know, sufficiently uh, modern. We wipe our asses. Or you could work out who the culprit was by checking skiddies. Well, it, it, we never went that far, but uh, <laughs> thankfully. But I walked in one day, and there he was. Front paws hooked around the front of the seat, legs akimbo, using the toilet, and looking thoroughly embarrassed to have me walk in on him. Well, so would I. And I uh, didn't like people watching. Nope. But at least solved that mystery. And But never taught. He taught himself how, why, who knows. Well, he... I mean, they do like to watch cats. I've yeah. frequently got three cats watching when I'm on the throne. Oh, they've turned it into a spectator sport. That's nice to know. And Satan, when she was younger, used to enjoy sitting on my lap. Oh, yeah. Keeping, yeah, no, I, I've had that. Keeping the willy warm while, yes. while the rest of it was in <laughs> operation. They sleep in the bed with you, then? Do, they, do you use them as hot water bottles? They, t- they do. Satan especially, she always starts off. Uh, climbs up on my chest right. and I have to have both hands on her otherwise she won't settle oh, God. so I start off reading in bed and then the head appears under my kindle pushes it out of the way and then uh, I have to put the kindle down and get her comfortable and then I reach out for my kindle and hold it with one hand while holding her with the other and then the head comes up and starts gnawing on the corner of the kindle until I put it down again. So you have to sleep on your back then, do you? Yeah, I have to. And sometimes I wake up and she's still in the same position. And sometimes she's moved down to the legs. And then sometimes I wake up and Reggie is curled up against one side of me. So yeah, that's what my, my two used to do. One is to like to get under the duvet and sleep by my belly. And the other one is to like to be on top of the duvet behind my back. Yeah, I, I mean, I love it when they're on the bed because that's what cats are for. Oh, they're great whole water bottles. I never, ever managed to train either of them to lie on my feet, though. <laughs> Which is always the bit of me that's cold in bed, so they were a bit useless for that. Yeah, they, they t- do tend to go for the warm bits. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's you are providing them with warmth. Yeah. They're not doing you a service. Can you still hear me? Because I can't hear you now. Yeah, sorry, I was uh, talking to Satan. Oh, you were talking very quietly then. Yeah, I might have adjusted some of my settings when I fixed the background buzzing. I'll have a listen back later and see what the score is. But through my magic mastering, it, everything will be equalised before it goes out. So. That's all right then. Because it, 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 it's in and out, in and out. Yeah. Um, I think I might have set my mic to condenser. Let me have a quick... Oh, I can't do it while I'm recording. Never mind. All right. Well, we'll manage. As I say, it will equalise itself when mastering is done. Yeah. Which is good, because it cost me money. Tell me about it. Um, For years and years in the bar, the jukebox was a nightmare because you have CDs in it. Oh, and they're all different volumes. Yeah. So you'd have quiet song and then the next one because the last half will turn the volume up the next one will rupture your eardrums we finally got a digital one they sorted that out thankfully yeah luckily there is such a thing as digital mastering uh yes it's a online sex service i believe (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) that's something else but i'm yeah so anyway we what we were talking about war What's it good for? Um, Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. I believe is the line from the song. Say it again. Oh, yeah. Last week's episode, which actually comes out today, was about the Knights Templar. Ah, okay. Which is very much about war. Oh, absolutely. And, and war in the name of God as well, which is the best kind of war. Well, most of them are. Religion oh, yeah. Religion is responsible for more wars than money, which is oh, kind of yeah. strange. But it's all about the same thing because religion was all about money and power anyway. Well, of course it is. It's just another way of manipulating um, the humanity around you, isn't it? That was the whole point of religion. Yeah, I, I wonder if people are aware, especially the... I think it's mostly media driven, but the English patriots who use the red cross on the white background, the cross of St. George, as their symbol. I wonder if they're aware that the Knights Templar actually started as a French movement. Um, no, probably not. Your average jingoistic English, um, <laughs> I was going to say thug, but it's not necessarily all of them are thugs, but um, no, you know, your average English. St. George and I'm Proud, hasn't got a clue that St. George was Armenian. Yeah, he was definitely... Ancient saint of about 57 different countries, and he never set foot in this country. And, I hate to break it to everyone, he never slayed a dragon. Ah, no, didn't do that either. So, you know... He might have stepped on a lizard. Um, possibly, but not intentionally, I don't Probably, imagine. if he came from Armenia. Yeah, there is a movement over here now, I think... I think it's, oh, God, there is a movement. People are, um, a small amount of people are trying to get our patron saint changed. Well, what's the point? Because we don't celebrate it anyway. We celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Yes. Like the Irish, the patron saint of Ireland, who I have to say is canonized because he chased all the snakes out of Ireland with a stick. I hate to break it to you. There was never any snakes in Ireland. No, but, you know, you've got to give him 10 out of 10. I mean, what a con. Guys, guys, I got rid of all the snakes for you. Way. Yeah. Well done. There's a fine fella. Okay, I should be canonised because I used a stick and chased all the Swedish people out of my house. I didn't, and that's been part of my downfall. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it does explain the last 22 years of your life. I should be canonised because I chased all the lions out of Sweden. Yeah, no, no it's, a, it's a, you know an absolute crock of shit. But then St. Patrick's Day, well, it is a bank holiday in Ireland and, um, you know, people get time off. But they don't dye the Liffey green. They, they don't have they, massive parades. They, they just go to the pub and get drunk. It's the rest of the world that does all the nonsense. They did dye the Liffey green at least once. Did they? Yes. I'm absolutely 100% sure. Oh, they might have done, yes, but I don't think it's a regular thing. It's Boston, isn't it, or Chicago that does it every year? Well, yeah, but I mean, especially in Boston, there's a lot of Irish heritage. Yes. Well, I believe the name Boston, it comes from, I, I won't attempt the Gaelic, two Gaelic words, um, and it just means the big house. Okay. Um, so it, it's Boston basically means that there be the English fucker who tells us what to do in his big house on the hill. That is, is the gist of the name. So, Well, the extent of my Gaelic is Pogue Mahone. Yes. <laughs> I think everybody knows that one. Except the Pogues. Yeah, well, possibly. And unfortunately, Shane McGowan is no longer with us. No, indeed. Now, that was a bit of a shame. 
It was um, a shame. He was uh, definitely a, a cult hero of mine. Yes. Although I, I did kick him out of Borderline once back in the 90s. But that I'm sure that was taken in good grace. Well, I didn't know it was him. He dyed his hair blonde and he was just this obnoxious drunk Irish man who was kicking off because he drank both bottles of Noily Poire that we happened to have in stock and had had in stock for like three, 300 years. And when I told him we didn't have any more, he went into a huge spitting rage. So I had him thrown out, but could, I had no idea who he was. Could you not have fobbed him off with a Cinzano? We didn't have any of that. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't do a lot of vodka martinis in the borderline, you know. It, it was, it was. Uh, I don't even know why we had two bottles of Noily Poire. I think somebody would ordered them by mistake. Yeah. Uh, um, and yeah, and, and then nobody bothered pointing out to me who he was until after I'd had him thrown out. So what could I do? The Pogues was always a good night out. It was one of the best live gigs, not technically or musically, but atmospherically. Well, it's, it's the crack, isn't it, it? It was a party night when the Pogues Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what they were. Um, but no, you know, he... It has to be said, he did an awful lot for, for Irish music. I mean, you know, most people know him for, what was it, um, that one particular song with Kirsty McCall. Fairy but, Tale of New York. Yeah. Yeah, but, but he, the stuff he did with the Dubliners was fabulous. Yes. When you when yeah, you yeah. brought two very different generations together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was my father's generation. Yeah. No, no, he, 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 I was listening to something and uh, some Irish guy was, it was a podcast, I think, and the guy was talking about, you know, how much he'd done to revive Irish music. And he doesn't really get the credit for it because um, he's just remembered it as this toothless pisshead. Yeah, I mean, he was basically Irish music's answer to Johnny Rotten. Yeah. Yeah, but more musically talented than Johnny Rotten, it has to be said. Satan is more musically talented than Johnny Rotten. But then that was the point of the Sex Pistols, wasn't it? she's a cat. (laughs) I mean, had the Sex Pistols been musically talented, it just wouldn't have happened. No, it wouldn't have worked. No. And, I mean, luckily, I say luckily, but, I mean, the great rock and roll swindle, Malcolm McLaren, it was genius, uh, but the music industry was in dire need of it as well because it was stagnant. Oh, God, yes. Well, the music industry is in dire need of it now, again. Yes, and it has been in need of it for the last 20 goddamn years since Simon well, Cowell infected everybody with his manufactured pap. Well, that, uh, 2008 surprised me because it's the first recession I'd lived through, and I've lived through a few, that didn't produce a new style of music. Instead, they all went on Facebook and bitched and moaned about how skint they were rather than go, I'm bored, pick up an old guitar and form a bleeding band. Well, this is because of Simon Cowell. You cannot become a popular band these days unless he decides it on X Factor. Well, that, um, that is certainly a, a, a factor as well. And, yeah, so you know, he's conned people into believing that, hasn't he? Add to that the fact they've shut down 99% of all the live music venues in the country. Yep. And you've got a stagnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and there's, you know, for a lot of kids now, there's no money in it. So why would it be an option? Oh, it's it's horrible to see that music has gone the way of big business corporations. Accountants, mate. I've been t- I've been telling people since the early noughties, accountants are killing rock and roll because yeah, you know, I mean, it, the borderline got taken over um, late nineties, and the reason I left, arguing with head office as to why we should be open on a Monday for a new band night. 
Yeah. They're like, but you're not making any money. I said, well, am I losing money? No, you're not. But you're not making enough money. What do you care? You're not the one that's up until three in the morning. You're not the one running the place. Oh, yeah, yeah, but you're not making enough money, so you should stop it, and it saves us money on wages. And it's that accountancy thinking that, you know, they don't see the value of something unless there's X amount of profit from it. But, of course, the value to the borderline of new band nights was that amongst our new bands, we had Pulp, we had Blur, we had all sorts of bands that, you know, a few years later were massive Britpop icons. And you also had a new customer base from the fans that followed the new bands who would then return to the borderline because they enjoyed it so much. Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, bloody accountants. Uh, They're probably responsible for the war and what's going on in the Middle East as well by now. Oh, definitely. Anyway, to business. We've bitched enough. Uh, I haven't spoken about my kitchen, though, but then I haven't got anything to tell you about my kitchen. Well, you can make I don't feel I'm being a proper Mark stunt double unless I mention some DIY. Yeah, well, I mean, you can think of something for the wrap-up at the end of the podcast. But for the beginning, and Mark's going to be sad that he missed this one, I want to talk again about sort of war, I guess. And it involves the Nazis and what business they have being on the moon. Okay. Are they on the moon? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, on the dark side? In fact, yes. With their base well, in the we'll, shape, of, shape of a swastika. We'll come to that. In 2012, a film came out called Iron Sky. I've seen it. Yes. And it, its premise is that there is a, a Nazi base on the moon. It's been there for 75 years, uh, waiting for the time to come back uh, with the Fourth Reich and take over the world. The film itself had some strange premises. It involved turning a black man white and a Sarah Palin lookalike in the presidential seat. And it wasn't so much the premise itself that struck a chord, but how familiar it is. People have always loved putting Nazis in space, especially when it comes to science fiction. One of the earliest instances of this trope is in a book called Rocket Ship Galileo, which was written in 1947 by Robert Heinlein. And it, okay. fe and it features... I think I may have read that many, many years ago. I've read most of his books. Heinlein is very prolific science yeah. fiction writer and i think probably everyone has read a heinlein book at some point no in my early teens i worked my way through so most of his books well this particular book featured three teenagers who traveled to the moon somehow <laughs> like because that's what you do yeah, absolutely and they discover a secret nazi base and you've also got the man in the high castle by philip k dick yeah read that one which has the Nazis having won World War II, colonising Mars and Venus. There's a 2014 video game, Wolfenstein, The New Order, which borrows heavily from Dick's work in terms of narrative and features an entire level where you infiltrate a moon base. There's a manga, The Legend of Koizumi, and that has the Prime Minister of Japan hunting Hitler on the moon <laughs> and battling him in a game of Mahjong. Okay, that sounds like a thrilling read. <laughs> well it's a manga so it's more picturesque i still don't think that's gonna help i don't know i think you could probably have some quite comical illustrations of hitler playing mahjong uh, <laughs> some of those stories are a bit more realistic than others 
but they all play on alternate histories. And it's basic storytelling and it's accessible, especially since the Nazis are some of history's most terrifying and monstrous villains. Considering the atrocities of World War II occurred less than a century ago, it's quite an easy and effective emotional pull. The space Nazis motif is specifically common, though, because it's realistic and definitively world-ending, not in a playing mahjong on the moon kind of way, but in drawing upon societal fears of the group's technological capabilities and the post-war aftermath. It might not have happened, but it could have happened. The greatest threat for the US during the war was the Nazis' penchant for, for technology and science, said historian A. Bodoin van Rijpa. Well, yeah, I mean, the moon landing, which didn't happen, only didn't happen because America had all of Germany's rocket scientists. We're going to get to that because this is a big part of today's story. In van Rijpa's book, he he co-edited Horrors of War, The Undead on the Battlefield. Before we were in a race with Russia to get into space in the 1950s, we were in a competition with other countries to get rocket technology from Germany. (coughs) (coughs) I'm in a bad way. Yeah, you sound it. Yeah, I'm actually coming down with something. Um, It's too bloody. I mean, how do you get germs when it's minus 31? Well, because it's not minus 31 anymore, it's minus 10. Yeah. We've got hardy germs. Because even that fluctuation is enough to set them off, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a heat wave. (laughs) The received American narrative of every conflict from the Spanish-American War through to the Iraq and Afghan Wars emphasises our superior, even science fictional for the time, technology. And Riper said, The Nazis are the only real-world enemy of the US widely perceived to have been a technological equal or even a technological superior. Nazi Germany played a huge part in launching the space race, thanks to the V2 rocket, which is described as awesome, which the BBC called a terror weapon. The missile had the capability to reach more than 50 miles above the Earth, virtually making it the first space rocket. Although we've argued it's about not in this. space. We've argued about this, me and Mark, many times. Yes, yeah, no, it's it's you've got to be sixty something miles, haven't you, to be even touching the the outer edges of space. An estimate says that over twenty seven hundred people in Britain were killed when these missiles were launched at the country during the nineteen forties. After the war, countries scrambled to get their hands on it. America was, and I'm making air bunnies here, lucky enough to snap up Werner von Braun the man credited with inventing the V2 and his hardware would go on to aid the first American in space. Yes, in the interwar period, we had Robert Goddard credited with building the first liquid-fueled rocket, remarked Rafik McGiveran, a history and literature academic who has written about rocket ship Galilea. But Von Braun brought the liquid-fueled rocket to life and in what, for the time, was quite a huge scale. Following the war was also the mass exodus of Nazi officials. Whether it was people like von Braun, who effectively surrendered to allied countries, or others who fled to South America, like Hitler. Adolf Eichmann, a Nazi SS SS lieutenant colonel, credited as one of the masterminds behind the transportation of Jews into concentration camps and ghettos, 
was found living in Argentina in the late 1960s. A US Attorney General report states that Joseph Mengele, an infamous doctor and scientist, had been living in South America for around 30 years after the war until his body was found in Brazil. It's unclear just how many war criminals escaped, but the number is put at nearly 9,000 by the Daily Mail, which means probably... <laughs> Four. Although, I have a tendency to exaggerate, but no, on this you know, occasion, I think they're probably in the right ballpark. Oh, oh, yeah. And if anybody wants to know more, watch The Boys from Brazil with Gregory Peck. It's a very good film about this very thing. Yeah. What if some alternate history scenario, instead of escaping to South America, Nazis actually went elsewhere, like the moon? Just adds another plot line to explore. In the book Horrors of War The Undead on the Battlefield, Professor James Ward from Cedar Crest College asserts that these tropes are fed by fact, escape and intrigue of the mystery of the Nazis' whereabouts and their affinity for technology and the occult. The theory also explains the proliferation of Nazi zombie films like Dead Snow. These creatures and the films they inhabit might not belong in the usual catalogue of horrors associated with World War II, but they reinforce the suspicion that we may not be finished with the Nazis or that they may not be finished with us. Plus, according to Van Riper, Nazis have a certain aesthetic appeal. They look like good villains. Generations of people engaging in media where the Nazis were the go-to villain have cultivated a look for the bad guy. It's the same appeal that draws people to the faux-Victorian steampunk technology like giant airships and humongous steam-powered mechas. It's impractical, and it makes about as much engineering sense as a giant ant makes biomechanical sense but it looks cool well even my daughter when she was eight asked me why the baddies are always better dressed than the goodies it's the way we it's the way we like to depict our villains they are yeah, clean, they the are clean smart, cut the guy in the sharp suit is always the bad guy yeah nazis in their own way belong on the moon American filmmakers and authors have combined post-war fears about world-changing technology getting into the wrong hands, the Nazis' interest in the sciences, along with present anxieties on terrorism and our continued interest in the final frontier, into a weird science fiction trope that even after 60, 70 years still makes sense. The premise is far out, but it's still believable in the way only a story about mad German scientists could be. The, the film you were first mentioned, I remember seeing trailers for that. Iron Sky. Yeah, yeah when um, fact, a, a mate of mine knew one of the people working on the production of it. It ended up being a bit of a cheesy B-movie, but it was not intended as. It was actually intended to be a serious film. Insofar as it could be a serious film. Yes, but the, 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 the business with the black guy being turned white and all of that, that wasn't part of the original story. It was more of a and almost an attempt to make it sound legitimate, like this could really, really, truly happen. But yeah, the end product ended up being, as I say, a bit of a cheesy B-movie in the end. Today, this year, in fact, NASA has come under fire, because not for Nazis on the moon, this is a bit of a side a sidebar, but a US company tried to embark on a mission last Monday to send a lander to the moon's surface. But the leader of Navajo Nation has objected to the inclusion of human remains aboard the rocket. Didn't it have ashes from Star Trek casts? Ex-members of Star Trek on it, I believe. Amongst others, this is a a company that was set up to 
blast people into space, basically. So this company was set to make history as the first private US entity to embark on a mission to send a lander to the surface of the moon, which, as we all know, is impossible. Well, yes, the, the moon's not there. The landmark endeavor, it's a hologram. The landmark endeavour is not just the latest sign of a budding commercial space age, but it's an important step in NASA's own goal of putting astronauts, it says here, back on the moon, but let's face it, for the first time, putting a man on the moon. The upcoming launch is written, obviously, before it was cancelled, which has faced setbacks and delays, has been long awaited. But now they're going to have to wait a little bit longer because the United States' largest tribe of Native Americans, the Navajo, sent a letter on December 21st to NASA and the US Department of Transportation objecting to the plans for human remains to be carried aboard this rocket in order to be laid to rest on the lunar surface. Boo Nigren, president of the Navajo Nation, requested the launch window be delayed until tribal leaders can meet with NASA and other government leaders to discuss their concerns. In response... Is there Navajo remains being sent on this mission then? Or are they just objecting in general? They're objecting in general. And the, the reason for that is because the moon as a celestial body is revered by the Native American people. Yeah, OK. Yeah, that makes sense. So in response, the White House convened a last minute meeting with Navajo Nation to discuss their concern. And as I said, the sacredness of the moon is deeply embedded in the spirituality and heritage of many indigenous cultures, including our own, Nigran said. And the placement of human remains on the moon is a profound desecration of this celestial body revered by our people. How's he going to feel about a moon base then? They'll probably open a casino in it. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> probably not, but you're probably right. <laughs> so who are this company? They're Pittsburgh-based Astrobiotic or Astrobotic. And its Peregrine Mission One is one of two NASA-supported private companies racing to get the US back on the moon. The uncrewed commercial missions are a vital part of NASA's hopes of sending astronauts to the lunar surface itself within the next few years as part of its Artemis program. It's bollocks. Honestly, ever since Richard Branson started his Virgin Airways, he spoke about a space program and this time next year, I'm going to put a man on the moon. It's been happening for so many years. Just stop talking nonsense. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. You couldn't even get to space yourself. So bugger off, Branson. Well, I'd agree with that because I don't like the man at all and never have done. But um, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? It, it, with all the technology we have now, if they could do it in the 60s with the computing power of a calculator, then it should be a piece of piss now. Yeah, I mean, it, the technology is there, but the know-how is not. Yeah, well, I mean, it can be said that the know-how is not because they didn't look after the people in the 60s who put the man on the moon in the first place. And a lot of them are now dead as well, aren't they? Yes. Especially the old lady, the, the woman who actually did all the calculations. One lady. Yes. And though, from my point of view... It was a waste of time, all those calculations. calculations. I appreciate that. <laughs> it, was, it was just a woman they grabbed off the street, stuck a load of folders in front of her yeah. and said, here you are, love, you're going to be famous now as a mathematician. Yeah, can you math this for me, please? Back to, back to Nazis on the moon. More recent examinations of Von Braun's life 
have gained a bit of a distance from the nationalistic fervour that prevailed at the height of the space race. In Von Braun, Dreamer of Space, Engineer of War, they do love a title. Oh, yeah. Why can't they just call it Space? You might get a bit confusing if every book about space was called Space. Yeah, but it would also make it easier when you went to the library. It would. Anyway, Michael Newfield, former chair of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum's Space History Department, sheds light on how knowledge of Van Braun's collaboration with the Nazi regime was purposefully suppressed. But Newfield stopped short of casting him as a complete villain. It would have been dangerous for Von Braun to complain to Nazi leadership about his work or the conditions in which his missiles were made. He also argues that Von Braun's membership in the SS, which was classified information in the US, was at least somewhat coerced. And I, I sort of agree with this because a lot of Nazi scientists were SS party members, but then they pretty much had to be. Yes. Yeah, no, it, it, it is like Oppenheimer, isn't it? it? It's the same thing. Scientists generally are so wrapped up in the science and their own little world that they often ignore or are just simply not aware of the bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, a lot of scientists are working towards the betterment of humankind, but the people with the money and the accountants are turning, are looking how they can turn their inventions into war weapons. Yeah. Because it, that's what sells. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but... Uh, Nothing going on since, you know, the days of Galileo and the likes. I mean, you know, the man was trying to invent helicopters and I believe he did invent some kind of early tank. Yes, you know, but he was he was not there to create war weapons. It was just what people were prepared to pay him for. Exactly. Create your artistic perfection in your own time, but you do something that sells while you're at work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so... Von Braun was probably a flower arranger when he was uh, not actually in the lab creating weapons of mass destruction. Well, Von Braun, much like Oppenheimer probably seldom, if ever, seemed to consider anything except advancing their own careers. Yeah. He wasn't ideologically interested in Nazi ideals, although he was happy to profit from its status as an Aryan aristocrat. A more damning take comes from Wayne Biddle, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of Dark Side of the Moon, much better title, Biddle frames Von Braun as a war criminal with direct involvement in the V2 slave labour project. Because you've got to remember that although the V2s killed maybe 5,000 people in London, up to 20,000 people who were involved in the creation of the V2 rockets died in concentration camps. Well, again, I doubt it was his choice. But, you know, human beings are remarkably good at blanking out the bits we don't like. And a man who only escaped justice thanks to the efforts of the American government, which was desperate for help in beating the Soviets. One always has a choice in life, and von Braun never made a choice that moved him very far away from the Nazi regime, says Biddle. And he also echoes Newfield's characterization of von Braun as career-obsessed. He always made choices that resulted in his rapid advancement at a very young age. But von Braun wasn't the only one who prioritised success. Confronted with the growing power of Starling's USSR, the US government sanitised von Braun or von Braun and other German scientists' images in order to use their skills. To a large extent, the American public went along with it. There was public protest in early 47 about the importance of the Germans, explains Newfield, and then the Cold War got worse. 
and it pretty much went away. That moral calculation enabled Von Braun to become an iconic leader in the American space programme, admired by many and untouchable out of sheer national necessity. Decades later, the reassessment of his legacy may have had less to do with a growing understanding of his crimes than the fact that the engineer was simply no longer needed. Von Braun was bought over initially to milk his knowledge, said Biddle. Once that was used up, he became expendable. And what happened to him then? But I mean, in his heyday, he was on TV regularly updating the American public on the space program. And I never understood why any of the German hierarchy were given the opportunity of a pardon, basically, to come across and use their knowledge or their skills. I think that should have gone to the death chamber with them. Oh, absolutely. But there was profit to be made, wasn't there? You know, yes. under the guise of beating the, the Russians, there was money to be made. No, it's it's always the way, isn't it? You know, it, it, we've seen it time and time again. You know, politicians are very good at standing up and ranting about how they would never accept this and never accept that until somebody offers them enough money to accept it. Well, the fact that we're still debating Von Braun's legacy 50, 60 years after his rockets put men on the moon, allegedly, it just speaks to the profound effect that he had on America's image. And while he was undeniably an engineering genius, this one-time cog in the Wehrmacht, he died a largely unquestioned American hero. And that speaks to the fact that what was his probably his greatest skill, salesmanship. To survive in Nazi Germany, he sold Hitler a dream of victory through technology. And later, he sold the US Army a vision of intercontinental nuclear dominance. But von Braun's biggest sale of all is apparent in Disney footage. To Americans, he sold the dream of men in space and flags on the moon. And by and large, the nation bought it. No questions asked. Yeah. You know, allowing there was no internet in those days, but nobody questioned it. You know, and people don't. Oh, wow, look. Look what he's doing for our country. It's amazing. And very few people questioned where he'd come from, where he'd learned it. Very few people were interested. Because, um, as you say, you know, I can wave a flag. Yay, hey. Great for America, or whichever country it may be. I mean, America are not alone in, in having that attitude. But um, it's very easy to forgive people's sins. Um, I mean, the Catholic Church have been doing it for years. They used to sell you documents that forgave you your sins before you'd even committed them, if oh. it suited them. Yes, that was, uh, that was a papal service offered. Uh, and they would actually sell you that forgiveness to your relatives after they'd actually died. Yeah. So... If you really believe your father deserves a place in heaven, but he was a naughty boy, you can now give us some money and we'll forgive him posthumously. That's a nice handy one, that one, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as I say, it's the human condition. I imagine that's been going on since we climbed out the trees. It is a fact that <clears throat> money is the root of all evil. Oh, without a doubt. Oh, anyway, one question that I still have in this culture of cancellation that we have, is why none of these people are cancelled? People have never heard of them. I mean, you've got the removal of the statue of the slave trader, Edward Colston, from Bristol's city centre, and demands for the relocation of the statue of British arch-imperialist Cecil Rhodes from Oriel College in Oxford, which have been met with accusations of people trying to erase history. 
Boris Johnson, who we all know and love, wrote in defence of Winston Churchill in central London, a well-known monstrous racist. Oh, God, yeah. No, I'm Welsh, so, uh, you know, I'm not a fan. Which no one was calling to be taken down, <laughs> by the way. Churchill statue. And he said, I'd get rid of all of them because it's not who they are necessarily as just who gives a shit about most of those statues anymore. I mean, where I live, there's loads of them, of old colonels and generals, colonials. Get rid of them all. Put up statues of Sid Vicious. Yes. You know, and Elvis. And people that people might actually recognise and go, oh, shit, yeah, I know him. Your sentiments and other sentiments have occasionally been met with questions. But what if it was statues of Nazis that we were discussing? Would we really want to see them commemorated in our public spaces for the sake of preserving history? But of course... The statue champions are spared that awkward question because there aren't any monuments standing today to the Nazis, except there are. Right out. The episode that reinforced the point that both Colston and Rhodes statues illustrate public mon- monuments are far more often a consequence of rather than a protection against historical amnesia or whitewashing. The Nazi mon- monuments in question didn't, it's true, receive any visitors. In fact, No one on Earth has ever seen them directly because they are craters on the far side of the moon. There are craters on the far side of the moon. What, they have statues in them or they're simply named after Nazis? (laughs) Well, one was named in 2005 by the International Astronomical Union after the German physicist Philipp Lennart, who won the 1905 Nobel Prize for his research on cathode rays, the rays emitted from hot electrically charged metal plates which turned out to be the subatomic particles called electrons. Among other things, the cathode ray tubes Leonard and others used to study their properties became the central component of televisions. So he's a hero. Couldn't have have Strictly on a Saturday if it wasn't for this guy. So Leonard seemed a worthy choice for the kind of accolade that the IAU awards when naming astrophysical objects such as lunar craters. The same reasoning lay behind the organisation's 1970 decision to name another dark side crater after the German physicist Johannes Stark, who was awarded the 1919 Nobel Prize for discovering how electric fields affect the light emitted from atoms. It all looked uncontroversial, a celebration of achievement, until quantum physicist Mario Ken, or Mario Kren, of the University of Toronto, contacted the IAU to point out that both Leonard and Stark were ardent Nazis, virulent anti-Semitics and adultery followers of Hitler. Now, the first two I've got a problem with. Adultery, not so much. Yes. Oh, yeah, well, it's, yeah, adding adultery to that list seems a little bit pointless, doesn't Sorry. it? You know, it... it, it Card-carrying Nazi kind of does it. i got to stop you there. I'm going to have to do that whole thing again because my eyes are betraying me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to do that whole thing again. Virulent anti-Semites and adulatory followers of Hitler. <laughs> that, that does make more sense. I think I might even just leave that in. I, I think you should just leave that in because that's a good one. <laughs> Although I still stand by my adultery. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, you should have a crater on the moon named after you. I definitely should. The pair 
were largely responsible for the absurd idea there was an Aryan physics stemming from the respect for facts and aptitude for exact observation, as Stark put it, that resides in the Nordic race. Now, I've lived amongst the Nordic race for the last 20 years, and I can't see it. Well, is he suggesting that somehow they had better concentration and were smarter just because they were Nazis? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not buying that one. And that had, in their view, infested their discipline, due largely to the theories of Albert Einstein, such as the theories of relativity, that were too heavily mathematical physicists to understand. Whereas many German scientists fell submissively into line with Nazi politics in the 1930s, Leonard and Stark actively embraced them. In a jointly authored 1924 article called The Hitler Spirit and Science, they celebrated the Nazis as God's gifts from times of old when races were pure, people were greater and minds were less deluded. <laughs> no, minds were not less deluded. <laughs> I think they just proved that minds were not less deluded. The two of them led anti-Semitic attacks in the press against Einstein in particular, and later pressed their colleagues to accelerate the expulsion of non-Aryan scientists as dictated by the Nazi laws. Their attempts to take over the running of German physics in the Nazi era was foiled only by their own political incompetence. All of this is described in detail in the 2013 book on German physics under the Nazis called Serving the Reich, which led Kren to recommend to the IAU to show the real histories of Leonard and Stark. The IAU evidently knew nothing about them previously. Its officials says that the decision about the craters relied on the 1968 Marquis world who's who in the records of the 2005 decision about Leonard, which hadn't been made public. And the IAU says that the files kept in its Arizona office are currently inaccessible because of coronavirus closures. The Nobel biography, which the organisation will surely have consulted, does state that Leonard was a convicted member of Hitler's National Socialist Party, but that in itself, as we said earlier, wouldn't have been unusual for a German scientist because you were either a member of the National Socialist Party or you were in chains. Yeah. But anyway, armed with this knowledge now, the IAU has acted swiftly and decisively. Planetary scientist Charles Wood, chair of the task group for Lunar Nomenclature, has recommended to the group that the names of Leonard and Stark should be quickly replaced. There's been no procrastination, no hint of Johnson's complaints that such a move would be photoshopping the cultural landscape or any suggestion that we should not judge Leonard and Stark by today's standards. Nor could such a defence be remotely credible. If there was any whitewashing, it was at the Nuremberg trials, where Leonard was judged too frail to stand and Stark escaped with a cursory fine. Fine. Yeah. The institute, named after Leonard at the University of Heidelberg, was quickly renamed after the war. Science is learning, slowly, that its eagerness to commemorate its great names in buildings, prizes, statues and celestial natural monuments creates hostages to fortune. University College London has, after much campaigning, finally agreed to rename lecture theatres and buildings named after the prominent early advocates of eugenics, Francis Gayton and Carl Pearson, 
And this move is one step in a range of actions aimed at acknowledging and addressing the university's historical links with the eugenics movement. But this kind of belated reckoning with the past gives urgency now in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's going to be awkward for science. Should we be troubled, for example, by the gleaming biosciences powerhouse that is the Crick Institute, given Francis Crick's own eugenic enthusiasms? And those ideas didn't, contrary to common belief, fall into general disrepute after the Nazi era. You see, the problem with all of this, though, isn't it, is it's, you can pull down the statues, you can change history, you can eradicate them from history, but it doesn't make what they did go away. Nobody's going to go, oh, well, I'll tell you what, this man invented rockets, but he was a nasty a Nazi, so let's scrap rockets. It, yeah. it, you know, it all seems a bit big fuss on the internet, but it doesn't change history. Although clearly the reason we need to go back to the moon is now to take down the nameplates of these people that have been planted in these craters on the dark side of the moon. And the Nazi flags that have been planted next to their resting places, obviously. Where are they buried then? (laughs) (laughs) I was being facetious. (laughs) No, but obviously they're not buried on the moon, otherwise the Navajos would have had something to say about it much earlier. Well, nobody's buried on the moon for the simple fact that nobody's ever been there. Anyway, to wind this up, there was a... A Dutch Nobel laureate called Peter, I'm going to say Dubai, who was accused in 2006 of collusion with the Nazis while he worked in Germany in Dubai, relocated to the chemistry department at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, in the early 40s, where his bronze bust still stands in the entrance hall. And Dubai's case is revealing precisely because, unlike Leonard and Stark, it falls into a bit of a grey area. He was clearly not a fan of the Nazis but he accommodated himself to their regime and he left Germany only when they demanded that he, as head of a leading research establishment in Berlin, exchange his Dutch citizenship for German. And he exemplifies the moral compromises many will make for the sake of a quiet life. Yep. But still, like the Stark and Leonard Craters, Dubai's commemorative bust got there without any engagement with or even any knowledge of the man's disputed and difficult history. Cornell Department's Nobel Laureate chemist, Roald Hoffman, who lost most of his Ukrainian Jewish family in the Holocaust, argues that the Dubai bronze should be relocated to somewhere less prominent, which is precisely what many are advocating for the Oxford Road statue. To say that such suggestions and actions are trying to Photoshop history is to insult those like Hoffman living with history's awful legacy. As Simon Sharma has pointed out, history is and must be about continual argument, but monuments and statue brook none. And I agree with that to a point. I I believe that we should remember history and we should discuss it. I I don't know how I feel about tearing down particular statues. I think your idea might be the best one, tear them all down and then continue to teach history in schools. Well, you see, I found it fascinating over the years talking to people from different countries. Um, I mean, my wife's Irish and... um, you know, the history that she was taught is completely different to the history I was taught in school. 
Yes, every country so tells its own English story. history doesn't mention 800 years of the subjugation of the Irish nation, no. whereas Irish history is all about that. Yes, so yeah, history, history depends on where you are, who you are. And, um, well, history is written by the winners. Yes. But you see, also, I find it, you know, if we're tearing down statues, how come the French aren't screaming that all statues of Julius Caesar be torn down? Because he's not exactly their favourite person. Oh, yeah, but then the French are nobody's favourite persons. Well, yeah, but, you know, he subjugated. He subjugated Gaul, he enslaved them, he murdered millions of them, all to line his own pocket, which is the whole purpose of, of his invasion of Gaul, was a political move and want to make an awful lot of money so he could become Caesar. Uh, so, you know, his statues, it, where do you end? You know, where, where do you draw the line on this? Um, I mean, I agree with you. You know, history needs to be taught more honestly. It, it, this sort of national slant that people put on their history is, to be honest with you, a crock of shit. Unfortunately, a lot of real history is lost forever because, as as we've said, that the winners of wars write the history and now there's no witnesses left to tell us what really happened. Indeed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, I, I, I think a lot of it. You know, I've walked past these statues and for years in London. You wander around, oh, there's a statue, no idea who it is. Most of us don't care on a day-to-day basis. No. This is very much an internet-driven thing because, you know, Cecil Rhodes, yeah, what a shit of a man. I mean, some, some but, of the statues, they're very decorative and they're nice to look at, but nobody gives a toss what it means or who it's about. And I think we could definitely benefit by putting up statues of more relative and recent people that actually affect our lives in a positive manner on a rotational basis. Yes, no, that, that I wholeheartedly believe in. Um, you know, I'm in London. I, I was taught that, you know, a series of statues about Peter Pan, Winnie the Pooh, wander around London for tourists going from statue to statue with statues they can actually recognise. And you might... You might not like this idea particularly, but I think there should be statues of various politicians with an egg cellar nearby. And as part of our London tourist attractions, you can come and egg the fuck out of anyone that you really despise without fear of arrest. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think, yeah, I I think that's a great idea. And it would create jobs, of course. Yeah. Both for the chickens, the egg sellers and the people who have to clean up the mess. Oh, absolutely. But you can sell tickets for it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I would definitely pay to egg Boris Johnson. Oh, God, yes. But then he's still alive, so we can egg the real Boris Johnson. Yeah, but you would get arrested for that, unfortunately, because he's got money and we ain't. Yeah, this is true. This is very true. Although, I don't know. Um, <laughs> every policeman I know would quite happily egg Boris Johnson themselves these days. Yeah, but like the Nazis, they follow orders. Yes. Yeah. No, they, ultimately, they will do. Yes. I mean, it's all, well, you know, I'm sure there was an awful lot of Nazis who in their heads disagreed. But as you say, when you're put in that position and it's not just life or death, it's simply losing your job and not paying your mortgage, isn't it? Yep. Which is in itself another form of slavery. Anyway, oh, God, yeah. This brings us to the end of this episode of Strange Stuff. I hope you found this mildly interesting. It's kind of weird the way we put people on a pedestal, literally. Thanks for stepping in for Mark and you're doing it again next Sunday. 
Indeed. I hope Mark's having a great time in London. Well, he's probably in bed asleep because he's been nightclubbing all night and got home at seven this morning. Oh, no, he would have been having tea at the palace with King Charles, no doubt. Ah, of course, yes. Talking about their latest helicopters. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we'll talk about something completely different, unrelated and hopefully not war-based. In the meantime... Have yourselves a strange week. Don't forget you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, the other things, Facebook. And you can check our website out at strangestuffpodcast.com where you can find links to all of those things. Where you can give us a like and a subscribe. You can send us a mail requesting any topic you'd like us to talk about. And it will be read. That's all I can promise. (laughs) In the meantime, have yourselves a strange week. And if you are asked to put up a statue to any Nazi scientists in your garden, you always have the right to refuse.